morning. And this, uh, this today is uh, a second of a two-part series, the final message of a two-part series. If you missed last week's, uh, don't worry, I'll catch you up this morning. But just to, to get us going from where we were last week, um, we were talking about um, the goodness of God in the midst of pain. And our basic point there was that all signs point to the fact that there is a, a good and loving God on a throne who's active in this world and how we can get all those arguments solidified up in our head and we can get, get the awareness that God is good and he's powerful and he's real, but how we struggle sometimes to translate that past this blocking, which is oftentimes in our neck, and bring that into our hearts where we truly feel that. And so uh, if, if, if you missed that, uh, it's online, you can go check it out. Um, but once we get the, the knowledge in our head that God is good, what does it look like then to feel that deeply? That's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, this feeling that, that God is good, especially in the midst of pain. And the way that we do that, the big word, or it's not a big word, but it's a, a big practice that we do to, to get that knowledge that God is good from our heads to our heart is called grieving. And we know that word, it's, it's grieving, but oftentimes we don't do it. And so today I'm going to play around with these points. Um, oh, I've lost control again. Next slide. The, the resurrection power of grief in Christ. We're going to be talking about that today. And that how grief is more than something that we do once. How it's a lifestyle that we have to live in if we're going to feel deeply that God is good. And so here we are at Easter. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at two different groups of disciples after the resurrection. The, the, the disciples after Jesus rose, um, or after he died and b before they knew he rose, they were really struggling. They were struggling with his death. They were struggling with how to make sense of it. And here they are, probably all sleeping on Easter morning, tired, exhausted, in grief, um, laid out on the floor. So we're going to talk about the disciples and, and their grief, but then we're going to talk about two other disciples who ultimately just lost hope. They, they turned away from their friends, and they started walking away from Jerusalem uh, on the road to Emmaus. And when we see these people, and when we look in, at their story, we recognize just how important grief is to do to remember that God is good here. So here we are, early on Sunday morning, a little over 2,000 years ago. Jesus had died on Friday. They put him in the tomb. He was resting in death, in the deep sleep. Um, they had no idea, uh, even though Jesus told them that this was going to happen, they had no idea that it was really going to happen. And so... Um, here they were, um, their, their hearts beginning to turn to stone, hiding from their pain, and starting to move away from all that has happened. Except for one. There was one who knew how to grieve in this moment, at least one, and her name was Mary Magdalene. It was Jesus' best friend. Um, and by the way, in, in recent days, uh, in the last sort of 20 years, people have begun thinking, well, I wonder if Jesus and Mary were like more than friends if they're boyfriend and girlfriend or lovers. Anyway, I, I think some people toy around with that thought. And just so you know, that's based on a lot of errors in reading the, the, the early uh, history. And we, we love to think about that romance and that drama. But the, the same place we get the idea that Jesus loved Mary very carefully is the same place, the same source where it says that Jesus loved his disciples very carefully. And so we get this sense that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were the best of close friends. And she was not ready to turn away from her pain. 
She turned towards Jesus. There, were probably, there maybe were a few other women, but they were all women, which says something about women facing the pain head on in the world. The, cor- the, cor- the courage and the strength to do that when everyone else was beginning to go into denial. They went to the tomb and what they saw there, they, they, they weren't ready for. That the heavy weight of a stone which was moved in front of the tomb that no human being alone could move was gone. It was taken away. And they had some encounters with some angels who said, you're searching for Jesus, but he's not here. He has risen. And they encounter him. Mary, John tells us that Mary encounters the risen Jesus right then and there. And she mistaken him for a gardener. She couldn't, for whatever reason, Jesus' new body was able to sort of transform or hide itself or mask itself and, and take on different forms. She thought that he was the gardener and said, where have you taken my Lord? Give, show me his body. I'm not ready to, to turn away. Uh, and Jesus appears and says to her, um, don't cling on to me. I've, I've yet to go to my father, but go and tell my brothers that I am alive. And so she goes as the first preacher of the Christian faith to the brothers, to the disciples, and um, Peter eventually gets the message. Um, and they begin to realize that something was so much bigger than their pain and that they were part of a story that was bigger than them than they even realized, so much bigger. And so... Um, this is Easter morning. This is the message we get. And oftentimes, I think so many of us probably know someone in our life who has lost their faith or um, someone who just says, you know, I can't quite believe anymore this story. I can't believe that it happened in this way. It might be us. We might know someone close to us. And oftentimes when people come to me and says, Pastor Keith, I think I've lost my faith or I'm losing my faith. And I ask a few questions. And that's real. People do lose their faith. It's a real thing. Um, but oftentimes when people say, Pastor Keith, I've lost my faith, and I ask a few questions, I realize that they haven't lost their faith. They've lost hope. It's two different things. They're, they're interconnected, but they haven't lost faith. Losing faith feels like, you know, I've found something better. I've found an answer and a, and a, and a way of life that's better than, than Christianity or, 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 or whatever faith I'm part of. Losing faith is like I found something better. It's like I, I, I can't reconcile the big questions in my head and I've gone to something else. And that's, that happens. But losing hope is much different. Losing hope is like someone saying to me, I really, really want this to be true still. I really, I, I really want this to be true. I know I'm not an atheist. You can tell me all the arguments you want that God is good and I can hear you, but it doesn't go here. And I'm tired. And I can't go on anymore. And I'm fatigued. And that, my friends, is not losing faith. It's losing hope. Uh, and so um, oftentimes, um, you know, I, I ask folks, folks who are there, tell me about your trauma. That's my next question. What have you gone through? See, hope is like a muscle that is inside of us. And, and it can grow stronger or weaker. But it can get, like, cut and slashed, and it's like a muscle that we can't use anymore because it's injured. Now tell me about your trauma. Tell me your, about your pain. And then we can get begin, begin asking, how do we get this hope restored and healed? Um, and this is the second group of people, of disciples, who we meet. Um, oh, that was a beautiful picture of the, the empty tomb. I was going to use that to talk about all of this. Um, but we meet two other disciples 
who have lost hope. They're, they're not sticking around Jerusalem. They're moving away. Um, and there's so, much, so many interesting things to think about in this story for us. So they're, they're moving away from Jerusalem. They're on the road to a place called Emmaus, which is about seven miles outside of Jerusalem, the, the scriptures say. And I, 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 timed, I didn't time it. I Googled it. How long does it take to walk seven miles? <laughs> And it's about four hours, four and a half hours, depending on your pace. So they were in the middle of about a four-hour journey away. Uh, and they were going along, and Luke tells us that they were talking. Uh, later on in the story, Luke tells us that the man's name was Cleopas. Um, if you do your sleuthing, your research into who Cleopas was, it's very likely that this was Jesus' uncle. And that he was with his wife, Jesus' aunt. So close family, um, people who had seen him grow up. Uh, the, the earliest witnesses testify to this. Um, if you're interested in that, I can show you. Uh, but it's very likely that this was his aunt and uncle walking away from Jerusalem. And um, they, were, they were talking. And Jesus comes up to them and enters unknown in his little resurrected disguise, enters into the conversation. And he says to them, says, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So we don't know if he had a bit like a hood on, like a, you know, like a big cape and they couldn't quite see, um, but it's his aunt and uncle maybe, so they'll probably recognize that. The language is mysterious. They were kept from recognizing him. Is this God mysteriously putting something on their eyes so they can't see? Or is Jesus actually changed form? Um, the, the earliest disciples testified that Jesus' body could do this. So uh, they were kept from recognizing Jesus, and, and on they went. Um, and Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk on this road? And that the, the scriptures say they stood still, and their faces downtrodden. And you can get the picture of, these are hopeless people. They've lost their hope. And they say to him, are you, are you not the only one that's been in Jerusalem who's haven't, hasn't heard what's happened with Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and he says to them, what things? I mean, Jesus' questions are so important. When Jesus asks a question, he always has such a purpose to it. What things, he asked, and getting them to open up a little bit more. See how he's, at, he's, he's causing them to face their pain? Um, and they said, Jesus was a prophet. And we thought... Uh, we hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They had everything, everything placed in him. And it seemed like it failed. It all fell through. We had our full hope on him being the one who was going to redeem Israel. Um, you know, oftentimes when you, when you study this first, you study the parts of it which says that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, and you talked about the, his kingship and, and all the expectations and all the hope. But today, I want us to focus on this word here, hope. We had hoped he was going to be the one. Now, here's the thing, friends. People in life, and you know this because you're a person, People in life experience lots of pain. We know this. I don't have to stand up here and tell you this. Um, what happens with our pain, though, depending on the degree of it, sometimes it takes us a long time 
to become aware of it. I don't know if you've ever had a, a bad cut on your body, but right when you get cut, it's almost like you don't feel it. Like you, get it, you don't feel it. It's not quite, you, you kind of look at it and you realize, I, I can see that something's happening here, but I don't feel it yet. And so you wrap it up and you get it all put back together and then it starts to throb. And so sometimes pain comes upon us. Pain hits us, deep emotional pain, and it takes a while. And we don't, we're not sure that it's there and it's hidden from us and we're confused by it. And so what happens is we forget that in order for us to deal with this pain, where it hurts most, we have to face it. Uh, we have to face the questions, why me? Why am I the one left behind? Why am I the one that had to go through this? Why me? And if you, if you explore those questions, you'll begin to find the pain where it hurts the most. But here's the thing, and I, I want to invite you to think about um, a divergence point today. And, and uh, pain goes two ways in human beings. And it starts here. Okay, we have pain, and will we face the pain, or will we turn away from it? And what happens is, when, will we face it, or will we forget to grieve? Grieving is the movement towards facing pain and moving through it. And this is a, diver, a diversion point. If we don't face the pain, if we ignore it, if we stuff it down, what happens then is we have uh, something grow inside of us. If we, if we have pain as humans inside of us and we ignore it, something grows. And it, this question grows inside of us. And it goes like this. Um, I have this feeling that maybe there's nothing more left for me. It grows into this feeling that uh, we need to start to shut down. And what's most tragic about this movement, where we go with this, is that there's so much life in front of us and so, so many things that we have to live for and yet the very people closest to us, the ones who we are there to live for, are the ones who feel us pull away. And, and we get lost in our suffering, and we relive the past, and we get bitter. Do you know anyone who's bitter and lost in their past? You know what that looks like. We start walking down this road uh, to, to Emmaus with ungrief, and friends, it, just, it can end in just personal disaster. Um, we're bitter, we're agitated, we isolate ourselves, we move away from the very community of people who we were meant to, to be with, just like these two. And when life needs you, when life needs you to get going and get started up, at the very moment where it's most crucial, you stall out. This is ungrieved pain. This is what happens to humans, and we feel that life is over. And I'm going to bring us back, right back to this point. See where that all goes? That's ungrieved pain. That's what an ungrieved pain looks like in a human life. And it all started with this inability to face the pain rather than turn away from it. But our problem, our problem at this point is that our whole world is structured to make us ignore our pain. Our whole world is, is built to t say, you know what? You got to move on. You, people die you got to get over it. You have responsibilities. Move on. And that message comes inside of our brains. And we do. And we just move on. In great tragedy or little pain that needs to be grieved, we just we continue on down, down a path that is hard for us. Um, and the fascinating part of this story to me, the most fascinating part of these two, is that 
when they had left, they had already heard Mary Magdalene's testimony of Jesus' resurrection. It says, Jesus says, um, is, is, is asking them and getting them to talk about the thing that's hurt most in their life. And they say, what's most amazing to us is that some women went to his tomb this morning and found it empty and came back and told us they'd seen him alive. Like they had heard the testimony of Mary Magdalene and yet still left. Like that, that is the movement where they're like, we cannot face this. We can't, we can't even begin to face uh, the reality here. Um, and Jesus said to them, this is what he says to perhaps his aunt and his uncle, you foolish people who are slow to believe. Didn't you know that it had to happen this way? And, what, and, and it says that he opened the scriptures and went back all through the Old Testament and showed them verse by verse how he, he had to suffer in this way. And as they were getting close to, to Emmaus, um, they're, they're, there's an interesting depiction of them. Beautiful, eh? As they were getting close, they said to this mysterious stranger who had entered into their pain, it's getting late, why don't you stay with us? Why don't you stay um, overnight at the inn that we're staying at, perhaps, on our way back to Galilee? And Jesus said, okay. And so he came in, still disguised, and they were eating together. And you can just imagine Jesus' excitement to share the news with them, to really reveal himself. He took a piece of bread, as he did at the Last Supper, and broke it um, and gave thanks to God. And it says that when he did this, their eyes were opened to him, and they realized that it was him, and immediately he went away. That's the most frustrating part about the resurrected Jesus. He'll give you a taste of his reality, and then he disappears. Why? We don't know exactly. But they realized, it's Jesus. He is resurrected from the dead. And the one said to the other, didn't you realize, was, was, wasn't your heart burning when he opened the scriptures up to us and told us about all that had to happen? And it says that they got up immediately and they went back to Jerusalem to join the others. And they got back and they said, it's true, we've seen the risen Lord. And they're all saying, it's happening too. Um, and what Jesus did for his aunt and uncle or whoever these two people were was this. He, he forced them to face their pain. He breaks into their, their life as he does to ours. Well, inviting us maybe is a better word to focus in on what's hurt most and then sets them off in the healed direction. And here's what happens. Um, if we face the pain where it hurts the most, here's how this progresses. We start uh, wanting something different than what we went through. We start thinking that there is a future, that there is something to live for. There is brightness in, it, in us. And what happens is they open their hearts to the love of God, which is the food of hope. If our hope is going to heal, going to grow, we have to have our hearts open to love. Love of God and love of our people who are closest to us. As hard as that is sometimes. Because love is challenging. And we begin to see that there's so much unfinished life ahead of us. That there are possibilities and adventures and responsibilities. And God has us here for a reason. And the very walls, I said this when I prayed, the very walls that feel like there's no way we're going to get over them begin to look like doorways 
we can see that there's actually a door through them and that Christ himself is leading us through that doorway. We don't always understand it. We don't, it doesn't always make sense. But when hope gets restored and rehabilitated, when it starts to thump again, then we start realizing that there's future and that we can move through pain. And here's the thing, friends. Um, if no one has done you the favor of pointing this truth out about life, let me point it out for you now. Life is a series of deaths. Life is a series, the life we live in requires us to need to know how to grieve. Like we think about your childhoods or when you had a young child and they were crawling on the carpet and maybe there's a beautiful memory of, of them being little and you can play with them and all of a sudden they're driving or they're out of the house. Life moves on and, and we'll never get back to those times. We have to have something in our life or our own childhoods. I mean, I know part of going from an adolescent into a teenager is this. You're, you're grieving your childhood. It's going away. You'll never get it back. And that, my friends, is something that we need grief for. Uh, think about uh, the beautiful places that you've visited in your life and small trips that you've taken. Where Life is always saying goodbye to beautiful places. If we don't know how to grieve, friends, we're going to really struggle and get stuck, bitter, and in the past. We've got to have that thing in our, our hearts or that ability uh, to keep going when life asks us to start again. But how? That's the big question of the, the day. I could just leave it there and just let you sort of figure this out because um, you're smart people and you, you know what I'm talking about. But I want, I want to give you a little bit of um, a little bit of advice today. A little bit of, here are some things that I notice about grieving. How do, we, how do you do this? How do you live a life that keeps the grief cycle going so that you can move on? How do we face the pain where it most hurts? How do we tend to that hope muscle when it gets fatigued and damaged and tired? How do we begin to see uh, walls turn into gates? Um, how do we find consolation? These are the, the, the central questions. How do we continually let the love in that we need to keep going? I want to give you five thoughts about how to grieve. And then I'll finish off with a few pieces of practical advice. First is this. Recognize that pain is love crying out. If you're in that spot where, where you've been brought back to your pain and you know that you've traveled this path towards, un, of, towards ungrief and it hasn't gone well, and you're back at the place where you're facing pain, recognize that for, the first thing that we do is recognize that pain is love crying out. Uh, Jesus went to his, those two disciples and said to them, tell me more. He started picking. What was so painful for you? What was it that, was the, that, that hurt you the most? I remember they said, we, th we had our hopes in him. We thought that he was a prophet. But the, 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 uh, the Romans and the Jewish priests conspired together and they killed him. Uh, what Jesus is doing is not just helping them recognize that they're in pain, but recognizing just how much they loved him. That this is one thing that they were probably starting to ignore. They loved him so much. And the, the greater the love, the greater the pain. That's how this works. And so if you are protesting against the suffering that you've experienced greatly, recognize that means you've loved greatly. You've allowed yourself to love greatly. Uh, 
Sometimes, and the, the thing about love, I don't know, I have an active imagination. Sometimes when my wife and my kids go off on a trip, probably happens every time, I'm going to be honest with you. I start going, well, what if they die? What if they get in an accident? And then I start to miss them. And then I start really to love them again, or at least feel like I love them again. <laughs> you know what that's like. Um, the most tragic thing to me about this life and, and love is that you don't ever really realize how deep your love is until it's gone. Only in retrospect do we get a sense to know how deep our love is for someone. That's why when funerals hit, all the good stories come out. Um, and the first step to, towards facing our pain is to recognize if we're really, really, really in pain, we've really, really, really loved. And that's a beautiful thing. And that's something to be celebrated and cherished. Second thing, we have to face it. We have to find where it hurts the most. We have to be honest with it. You know what? Sometimes it's enough to say, that hurt. That really hurt. That's, that can be some of the most healing things. We, 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 we go through grief, we go through pain, and we move on. <laughs> and we never say that. Sometimes we never we just be honest. And I, I see a therapist once a month. He's just so great. And I talk to him through stuff. And sometimes he'll say to me, Keith, you know, when so-and-so did that to you or when you went through that, I bet that really stung. I was like, you know what? That did sting. <laughs> that's, that's the best moments in therapy. That did hurt. <laughs> um, we have to face it and we have to be honest with ourselves that, that it hurt. And again, we have to find the place where it hurt the most. Um, when we do so, um, when we're honest with our pain, we then become aware of how powerless sometimes we are in the midst of it. And then we begin moving, friends. We begin moving away from this slippery slope towards personal disaster, and we begin to heal. So third, we have to search for the meaning in our suffering this is the hardest place of it all. And this is where we most often get off track and start sliding back. We have to search for the meaning in it. I've, I've read this beautiful book this past couple of weeks that I would really recommend. It's not a long book. Uh, it's written by the great Christian writer Henry Nouwen. Um, this is called The Sorrow Shared. It's actually two letters that he wrote. One is a letter that he wrote describing in almost vivid detail the last week of his mother's life. It's beautiful because here's someone who knew how to grieve. Uh, six months afterwards, he's like, I have to remember her. I have to remember how she died. And so he wrote it out in great detail. And then, um, I guess it was six months later as well, he wrote a letter to his father called A Letter of Consolation. Uh, it's not a long letter, but it's beautiful in which he opens up the idea of finding meaning in suffering. Uh, and he, he's writing to his father to whom he had kind of a troubled relationship with. He talked about, I loved how he just says this in his letter to his father. When I would call home, you would, you would be on the phone long enough for me to know you were alive. And then you'd hand it over to mother. And you'd, that didn't mean you didn't love me. It just meant that you, you wanted to express your love through her. Um, and so he wrote this letter naming a bunch of things that had been unsaid in their relationship. 
And he gets to the section, it's the, probably the most beautiful section, where he begins asking the question, if we really want to love and honor our mother and her memory, we have to find the meaning, not just in her suffering, but in her death. Because it's a death now that's between us, and we need to find, we need to ask, here's how he says it, we have to ask, what is the harvest of her death? Because Jesus himself tried to get this point. I mean, Jesus was one of the greatest teachers of all time. And he was trying to get this point across. If, if something's going to live... If something's going to grow, it first has to die, like a seed falls to the ground and dies and then brings forth a fruitful harvest. And he asks, what was the harvest of her death? And here's what he begins to say six months later. He says things like, um, you don't hide behind mom anymore. His father had begun writing him deep and lovely letters. So mom's not there to hide behind. And now we have a new chance for a relationship that we never could have had before. You see how he's moving there? He's moving beyond facing his pain. He's facing it head on. But he's moving into finding future, finding the future in it. Um, he says, death somehow simplified our life. We got new eyes to focus on what was important. Um, his father, who was a task-oriented lawyer, who never lost a case, he said, in his life, um, had to face his powerlessness in the face of his mother's death. He's, now and says to his father, you could do nothing to stop it. The, the forces of life always prevailed until in this day they didn't. And you had to watch powerless uh, as you could do nothing. Um, and he says to her, or he says to his father, um, that's a gift to you, dad. That's a hard thing to say. You, you're not the master of the universe. You don't have it all in control. And mom's death opened up the possibility for you to realize that. He says, now you've begun caring tenderly for your friends in ways that you just cold, were cold with them before. And he begins searching for all of this. Now, friends, uh, searching for meaning in pain is a dangerous business. And we can do it so cheaply. And we have to recognize that the harvest that comes out of pain is never cheaper than the loss. You have to, if, if you went through something horrible and incredible and you thought, well, that's, it's just because something small in my life is now possible. It's, it's never, never cheap. Pain is never cheap. Um, but now and says this to his dad, when mom died, your life simplified. Long forgotten events returned to memory as if they had taken place only recently. Our whole lives go into the palms of our hands like small, precious stones and gaze at them with tenderness and admiration. How tiny, how beautiful, how valuable. This is, this is the language of someone who's grieving, who's doing it well. Um, this, this last point here is really hard for me to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, and I'm saying it mostly because this is being recorded, and I hope someday that my children can hear this if I die on the other end. Um, and if we've, we've all lost people. We've all, we've, all, we've all lost people in our life. Um, and Nowen says in this book, and I'm coming to agree, um, that we cannot understand the meaning of a person's life, like Jesus's, until we understand the meaning of their death. Um, until we come to terms with the fact that um, 
a person died. Until we come to terms with the fact that that's their, that's their life story now. That's how their life went. We couldn't do anything about it, but that's how it went. And until we understand the gift of that, it says now and, we don't understand and we're not honoring the gift of their life. This is the hard, hardest movie. He actually says to his father, um, until we come to a place where we realize that it was better for mom to go, that we have not honored her life. And I want that to be true of my children. I want them to say that about me no matter when I go, to understand that my death wasn't just in vain but had a purpose and was part of the bigger purpose of my life. I'm not saying this is easy, guys. This is the hardest thing, but this is grief. We have to find the meaning in it all. And, and now one asks, um, where, where can we find the harvest? What good has come out of the pain? It's hard. It's really hard stuff. Um, but fifth, we wait in silence. This is the, the grief process. It doesn't go quickly. It doesn't come easily. And just when we think we've found meaning, and just when we think we're moving on, we get pulled back in the other direction into our questions into the pain. And so lots of times, friends, we need to wait. We don't need to rush ahead. We don't need to try to force things that aren't coming. Sometimes we just need to sit in silence. Um, can you imagine after Jesus disappeared, how stunned they must, his disciples must have been? There's a silence there. Um, life, life for us is never about being the masters of our universe. And sometimes we take blows and life gives us wounds and we feel like, if, I just need to get over it. I just need to get past it. And if, until I do, then I can have my life, life's purpose in my mind again. Well, this, it struck me this week how important it is for us to sit in the derailed moments of our life and to do the work of grieving. And the last thing, um, other than waiting, I wanted to invite you to is to go back to the people who love you these guys were, they lost hope. They were moving away from the, the community of disciples. Um, and the thing which nourishes our hope the most is the love. We cannot isolate ourselves. We can't push everyone away. If we do so, we begin slipping into destruction. We need to keep our hearts open to the love of the people who love us the most, even if it's sometimes it's tough love. Otherwise, that hope muscle just goes away. It sort of atrophies. Um, don't move away from your people who love you the most. Uh, a couple pieces of advice here and I'll be done. What can I do to face my pain, find my hope? I'm going to read you five points. Journal about the potential meaning in your suffering. Journal about your love exposed by pain. Journal about your own death. Write to those who need consolation. Write to those who may need to know your pain. See the common theme in that one? Journaling, writing, it's so important. Like seriously, like ask why. Why me? What's the meaning here? What's, what's been the fruit of this suffering? Um, talk about the, try to locate the place of, your, of the hardest pain. Find a therapist or a friend who can do this for you. And then celebrate the, the, the depth of love that you must have had to feel this pain so intense, intensely. Journal about your own death. Now one says that if we face the, our own death without having processed the fact that we're all going to die, we're not going to be ready for it when it comes. 
So journal about how you feel about your own death. It's morbid. This is Easter, right? This is just to do point of Easter. Don't go and, and eat a peep. Go home and journal about your death. Um, but yeah, this is grief. This is grief. Uh, write to those who need consolation. Nowen said, Nowen wrote a letter to his father. He said, isn't it, isn't it so much easier for us to communicate the deepest and truest things of our heart through writing? He says, when I'm at home with you, we watch TV, we go on walks. But now, when as I write a letter to you, I can expose the, the truest part of me in an intimate way. Perhaps you need to start writing to someone. Sit down and pen them your heart today or tomorrow. Um, who's in pain that you know, write them and, and try to console them. And if your pain is like their pain, now and said, look, mom, mom left us, and so now our pain is united in her loss. Uh, let them know how much you're hurting. Write. Do writing, friends. It's the best way to get to, to the grief, through the grief process. But the waiting needs to happen too. Garden. Take long walks. Draw. These are the things. These are hobbies which we push to the side because we have two more important things to do. But friends, grieving needs to happen on a regular basis, and we need to build it into our lives. What does it, what, what 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 can you do which allows you to wait, um, in in and wait for for Jesus to show up to you unseen? What can I do to face my pain? Pray. Take God's hand. Tell him about all that is painful. This is journaling as well. Tell him about what the, the pain feels like. Another book recommendation, Rhythms of Restoration. Take a picture of that if you want. Practicing Grief on the Path of Grace. You can find it on Amazon. It seriously has like 30, I don't know, 30 or 40 personal retreats that you can guide yourself on that allows you to journal about your grief and your pain. Get into that book or something like it. Okay, you see where I'm going with all of this. But when people tell you this morning, Jesus is risen, the proper response is, he's risen indeed. But if we haven't grieved our pain, our likely response is, well, good for him. If someone says to you, if you say to someone this morning, Jesus is risen, and they look back at you and they say, well, good for him, you know they're in pain. And you know what, that's, I'm, I'm, not giving, I'm not saying don't do that, but it might be awesome for some person to be honest this morning. Good for Jesus. What about me? When we say he is risen, the proper response is he's risen indeed, which means I can feel the same life that was coursing through his veins, coursing through mine. My life is being changed. I can feel the power working in me too. That's what he's risen indeed means. And when, and when we're in that spot where we can, see, uh, we can see that his love is continuing to pour into us, even though we cannot always feel or know he's there, then the proper response is he's risen indeed. I'm being changed. I'm being brought back to life too. And that's why we celebrate Easter. Um, that's why I'm sorry that I took us into a morbid, well, it felt maybe a morbid spot today into grief. But if, until we realize that this is what Easter is about, we, we've missed it all. Um, so we celebrate today. One of the wisest teachers in all of history, the person with whom his disciples said, when you were with him, it was like all of your self-worth and the best parts of you just naturally came out. He pulled them forth. Jesus, the person who we saw do miracles and raise people from the dead, this person is risen from the dead and is rising us too.
we're not, we're not left behind. So friends, as we, as we continue on today, as you head off into your family uh, spaces, I pray that you would find resurrection today. You would find a, 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 the courage to, to come back to that place where maybe you've got to face some pain again and go, go, through, go through some headlong grief uh, and find your way into resurrection. Uh, whatever this means to you today, I invite you now to sort of sit with it. We have a couple more songs left. Um, if you are angry, if you are, if this brings up too much in you and you need to just sort of leave or if you need to sort of journal and tell God where, where it hurts the most, um, do what you need to do to respond because God is here and he's with us unseen. One of the things that we do to grieve and get this in our, in our life cycle as Christians is regularly to come back to this table. And so there's bread here, there's juice and we take his broken body, we take the pain that he's gone through, and we take it inside of us as a way to, to begin grieving. He says, said to his disciples on the, the evening he was given up, this is my body which has been broken for you. This is my blood which has been poured out for you. The pathway to new life in grief, through grief, is opened. Um, so we take this week in and week out inside of us as a practice to keep ourselves open, to give, um, give our worship to, to the Lord and to follow him through into life. And there's nothing magical about this, uh, but it does something. So um, friends, happy Easter. And uh, the table is set and everyone here is welcome.